Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Miss Call. Why can't our 911 system keep up with emergency calls? Plus, does Vancouver's first baby of 2023 reopen the conversation surrounding both tourism? And New Year, same problems. The Yotown Clothing Boutique suffers two break-ins in two nights. When does this end? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on the issue of the moment, that being e-com. Now, we know it is our uh, as uh, our 911 service, where we call them for emergencies, for police, fire, or medical emergencies. Well, recently, the mayor of Delta, in his capacity as police board chair, sent a letter to the province demanding immediate action to address problems plaguing BC's 911 communications centre. Now, George, Harge, George Harvey says he was concerned that the e-com office has not been living up to the contract when it comes to uh, standards for answering both emergency and non-emergency calls. Joining us now is Delta's mayor. He's also the police board chair and, of course, Metro Vancouver board chair as well. Your Worship, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. So let's uh, talk specifically about the letter at this point. Uh, George, uh, what prompted you to send this letter specifically? Was there an incident or a variety of incidents that convinced you that you needed to do this? I signed a letter on behalf of the Delta Police Board. We've been discussing this matter with their police chief and involved staff for over a year. And it was final frustration by the board uh, that it was decided to send the letter. We didn't want to send a letter unnecessarily, but we were at our wit's end, if I could use those terms, and to bring it to their attention that we cannot have this going on much longer. Um, I just want to say, first of all, this is nothing, nothing about the dedicated working staff they Mm -hmm. have there. I know a number of the individuals, uh, they work extremely hard in very, very tough situations, but they are just not being supported. Uh, they, They are very understaffed. They're working too much overtime, terrible stress. Uh, but again, it's not about the workers there. I need to do something in my position as a politician to try to help them. Mm-hmm. Now, was there, was it 40% of Delta residents trying to reach police for, I guess it would be non-emergency line lines, were, they were rooted through BC's e-com dispatch centre, to my understanding, and they were abandoned? Yes, yeah, so in 2022, mm-hmm. the first six months, the statistics we received as a board members was that 40% of the Delta residents trying to reach police non-emergency lines actually had their calls abandoned. And as, as many people know, Delta Police the Department itself was formed in 1888. The foundation of policing in Delta has been for many, many decades about no call too small. So this actually erodes our ability to continue no call too small. And one of the reasons we're one of the safest police departments and police communities in Canada is because of the no-to-call policy. And I'm very worried that we're going to lose that and it's going to get worse. Uh, we were talking about the 40%, which is non-emergency calls. Were you seeing even a drop-off for emergency calls? Yes, we know that our emergency calls have been abandoned also. The lead times for addressing those calls has increased to an unacceptable level. But what also bothers me is, uh, as mayor and 
chair of the police board, but mostly as mayor, I'm responsible for ensuring that the taxpayers in Delta have fiscal responsibility for our expenditures. Uh, we are not receiving the uh, outcomes of the contract we have with Econ. We're paying for what we uh, were receiving many years ago, but the call service is not meeting those standards. And that bothers me because we shouldn't be paying for something that we're not getting under contract. What is causing this in your mind? Was it, is it, was it COVID-related or is there something deeper and structural? Well, I think it's much deeper. Uh, I, I just reviewed uh, just a few days ago. Uh, it was a bulletin that the Econ put out about 20 years of public safety service in B.C., uh, starting in 2000 and, and say to two, from 1999 to 2019. And I was around in 1999 on a committee that was forming Econ. So in 1999, Econ, sorry, in 1999, Econ dispatched for eight agencies. Today, they are now providing dispatch services for 73 police and fire agencies. So if you go back to looking at the statistics, in 1999, there were 177 employees serving eight agencies, an average of 22 employees per agency. In 2019, 20 years later, there were 650 staff serving 73 police and fire agencies, an average of nine staff per agency. So to me, it's just that it's grown far too much. And we need to have the province accept a review to see how we must how we can do a better management of 911, not just in Delta, not just in Metro Vancouver, but throughout the province. Besides your letter, what else can you do as mayor? I mean, would would you set up your own system if this thing, thing can, if this system continues to deteriorate in your mind? Yes, we have to look at options. Uh, we can't have an, uh, a no call too small actually abandoned because of, of econ. So we are the police through the police board, and our, our police chief and, uh, and staff are looking at other options to adjust with the police board. But as mayor. I will be you know, looking at uh, my role in Metro Vancouver Chair. Uh, I'm going to be asking the, mayor's, the chair of the Mayor's ke- uh, Committee in Metro Vancouver, which is Mayor Brind- Brenda Locke from Surrey. I'm going to ask her to um, one of her meetings, which is coming up very shortly, uh, to have this as an agenda item. And I will be meeting and setting up a meeting with other mayors that have independent police departments in Metro Vancouver to discuss this issue and other issues. But uh, as, as chair of the police board in Delta and as chief Metro Chair, I need to ensure that we're moving this this subject forward to the province with urgency. Mm-hmm. I mean, just by the numbers that you gave me earlier in regards to, um, you know, uh, I think it was 650 employees, uh, uh, you know, dealing with at ECOM, dealing with 72 different police and fire agencies compared to what was there before. Uh, you would need a significant amount of new people, new hires, and ultimately a much bigger budget to meet the, uh, I guess, per capita coverage that you had when Ecom first launched? Uh, well, it's interesting about the growth of this, um, this of Ecom for BC. Again, it was never envisioned uh, to cover, you know, the whole of BC. It was only envisioned to cover Metro Vancouver. Uh, but you can see how much it's grown. And actually, how do you get all that staff uh, complement in today's world uh, by having one location? That's like Ecom's location right now is an impediment to attracting staff because of where it is and how how do you get there? So we need to look at some options now. But again, it is just much too big 
uh, an operation to provide effective services. Uh, I'm just uh, sp- uh, spitballing here, but do you think it, if, if you were to have, if you were to create a new system today, maybe you would have an e-com system based, let's say, in the interior some way, let's say Kelowna, perhaps one for the island and then one for Metro Vancouver. Would that be something that perhaps may be much more palatable, maybe work structurally for um, our population and, and our geography here in British Columbia? Yes, I think yeah, that's the concept that I would like to talk with my fellow mayors about mm-hmm. uh, and uh, also hopefully with the province on board of looking at options. Uh, we've always envisioned there would be a, perhaps a second e-com for Metro Vancouver, south of the Fraser, for example. Um, but those are, those are things that we need to look at now because right now, I, the only words I can say is that it's broken. Mm-hmm. Well, Mayor Harvey, I know you have a very busy day <laughs> beyond being mayor of, of Delta. You've got uh, the Metro Board responsibilities as well. I really appreciate you taking some time uh, for our audience today. Thank you so much for this, uh, to yeah. chat with us in regards to this very, very important issue. Thanks so much. Thank you, and please stay in touch. Go to any Starbucks in the morning or a McDonald's or a Tim Hortons. You know, we love our coffee here. Uh, in Canada, especially here in the Lower Mainland. Uh, and there is a change coming for those who have uh, reward uh, cards with Starbucks and Tim Hortons specifically. Uh, our resident coffee-holic, Bianca Rego, now joins us. Hello, Bianca. Hello, Jazz. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, I, it's fair to say you love your coffee? I do love my coffee, and I love it to be made very specifically. You're one of those people. I'm one of those people, <laughs> and I hate being one of those people, but I just can't help it. <laughs> It's, is it a health thing? Like you, you, it, you need something specific? Like no. are you one of those like you don't like regular milk? You have to have a certain type of. Yeah, milk? I, I drink oat milk um, or almond milk, um, and I just I usually I used to drink just black coffee, but it just wasn't as satisfying <laughs> as a handcrafted beverage. Like a, a vanilla latte, one would say. Okay, well, we'll, we'll go through your coffee habits uh, in a few minutes because let's <laughs> let's talk about the specifics in regards to the reward programs. We all love reward programs. We have them for flying. We have them for coffee. Now, Starbucks and Tim Hortons are changing their program. They are changing their program, and they are making it so they are raising the reward program by 50 points. So currently, if you want to get a free, just black brewed coffee, it's 50 stars, Starbucks stars, Starbucks stars mm-hmm. <laughs> to get that for free. They're upping that to 100. And to get a free handcrafted beverage, it's usually 150 stars, but they're upping that to 200. And now if you want to get like a free wrap or a sandwich rather than being 200 stars, it is going to be 250. And so each star you get, it's... Uh, per every dollar you spend. Mm. Unless you have a preloaded Starbucks card, then you get two stars per every dollar you spend. Now, those cards, when you think about them, uh, whether it be Starbucks or, or, or any reward program, you, let's say you put 20 bucks on those cards, $50, you're basically giving the company money and they put it in a bank account mm-hmm. and they make interest off that until you decide to use some of that money. Precisely. So they love these reward programs because they can actually make money off of them while, you, while you're sort of you know, using the, using those dollars, but taking your time using those dollars. Exactly. And also speaking of those reward programs, what I find funny is that it prompts you when you're ordering a coffee to preload a card. Um, and rather than just buying it with your visa, um, and those cards, you're unable to split the difference of the cost. If let's say my coffee is $9 and yeah. I have $4 left on my preloaded Starbucks card, I can't put $4 on my Visa and $4 on my Starbucks card. So I have like five different Starbucks cards that just have $4 in them that I 
am unable to use. So it's just free money for them. If you put it all together, I could get like three days worth worth of coffee. Now, I was just looking at social media as you were speaking as well. Like, uh, here's one uh, individual who basically says to earn one free cup of coffee using a prepaid Starbucks card, you have to buy 17 cups, uh, which uh, he says, look, this is basically doubling what's going to be required in regards to get that one free cup of coffee. That's a lot of money, $17 or 17 cups of coffee. you got to spend quite a bit just to get yeah. that one free cup of coffee. And right? when you think about it, like a free cup of coffee, isn't that much to them? I was looking up um, how much espresso bags of espresso cof- cost at Starbucks, and it's only about like $18. So let's say you're getting three shots of espresso. It costs them probably like 50 cents with some like a little amount of milk. The cost to them is like 75 cents and you're paying like $10 for it, which is insane. So you said uh, you used to drink black coffee, but now it's a bit more, um, the, the order's a little longer now, right? <laughs> it is much longer because I realize that when I add uh, syrup to my coffee, I get uh-huh. an extra little kick of energy. So I started doing that. So uh, I'm the barista. Hello, Bianca. Welcome to Starbucks. Uh, can I take your order? Uh, before I misspell your name on your cup, what, Which would they you will. Like, what would you like to have? So what, what would your order be? My order would be a grande toasted vanilla oat milk latte with four shots of espresso. <laughs> and well, you wonder why I'm so hyper in the morning. Now you know. <laughs> what does it cost? It costs $8.82. For me not to be a nightmare in the morning, yes. How, and, and so you have that one cup of coffee per day at Starbucks? Um, yes. So I also do have an espresso that I do need to fill up, and that would uh, significantly cut down my costs, but it's always such a long lineup to get the pods for it. So as of right now, yes, I am drinking one of those a day. So... I'm just going to do the math here on my phone. Please don't. So uh, 365 days in the year times $9. Drum roll, $3,285. in coffee. And that's why, I'm not saying it's fair, boomers always say, you know, the reason you millennials never save any money is because you're buying coffee. Oh, my. It's the the Starbucks coffee and the avocados and the price of avocados. I'll tell you that for free. Oh, you know what? I'm just going to do some more math here. Let's let's, let's say you bought (laughs) $35,000 cups of coffee. Okay, probably have. Times $9. I'm just saying. That's $315,000. I know that's a huge number. That's probably half a condo. That's a huge down payment on a condo in Olympic Village. I'm just saying that, and this is you, like I, I buy sometimes. I don't buy as much as you, that's for sure. And I just get a regular coffee. I'm just that kind of guy. But but it, it when even when you look at these, these cards, these reward cards, it's amazing. They've attracted us all. We all love the free cup of coffee mm-hmm. or the free trip. Uh, remember Air Canada also had uh, their um, um, aeroplan card. And, yeah. But this is about seven, eight years ago. And then they said, look, you've you got to start using some of this stuff and then we're going to make it tougher for you. And it, and it comes down to it sits as a liability on their books. How so? The, well, because if, if you owe somebody, let's say, I'm talking about Air Canada here, if all of us are making points and making points and not using them, and somewhere along the way, that sits as a liability on their books, right? Okay. And they wanted to compel you to start using them, and then they start the new system, which is going to be a little tougher for you to get those points. The core problem is these cards or anything free. We love free. So whether it's free miles mm-hmm. or free coffee, uh, we love this stuff so much it gets so popular 
that it doesn't work for them. So hence, we're going to make it a little tougher for you to get that free cup of coffee, right? Sneaky. It is, if you think about it. Well, that one uh, that one individual who tweeted out, looks, it, it said, it, it, he says, to earn one free cup of coffee using a prepaid card, you have to buy 17 cups. Using cash or linked uh, credit cards, you have to buy 34 cups. So it kind of gives you a sense of what's happening. It's partially, I think it is a bit of a liability. Partially, I just think it's it's popular. All these these cards become so popular, too popular, that then the company wakes up going, wait a minute here, this is, this is too much. It's costing them too much. And also, it's just the convenience about having, uh, buying it online because you don't need to wait in line and then it sucks you in and then just the free coffee is an added perk. I know. Look at we just had a whole conversation on coffee. Typical Vancouver, I'd say. <laughs> typical us, typical media. But but I think you're gonna have to drink some of that free coffee we have here at work. Yeah, you know, I'm trying. You got it. We got two places. They're not bad, you know. But three thousand two hundred eighty-five dollars. That's like two all-inclusive trips to Mexico. I'm just saying. Um, you know what? I'm I will, sound like a dad. I Look will up. try it. You know, I will try it, and we'll see how the week goes, and we I'll update you on that afterwards. <laughs> we should probably have you back here on Friday. <laughs> How do you feel? How's there your energy you level? Exactly. We should bring you on without coffee and see how it goes. Oh, no. There you go. All right, Bianca, thank you. Thank you, Jazz. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Let's talk a little bit about uh, birth tourism for a moment. Well, this, this morning I was uh, checking out uh, the website for Vancouver uh, is awesome. And of course they had a story on the first baby born in Vancouver in 2023. It was a baby girl. What I found interesting uh, in the article, I read that the parents were from Egypt. In fact, they're, from what I could tell, was e- they're Egyptian citizens. In fact, they planned to move back to Egypt. Uh, in the article, uh, they stated that they carefully considered the place for their child's birth. And after doing their research, um, they chose the, the the decision came down to the U.S. or Canada. So they chose Canada because it's a wonderful country. Um, and so the child born here uh, in Vancouver, the first child born uh, in 2023, is granted automatic citizen uh, citizenship. Now, Canadian citizenship is typically obtained by childbirth in Canada on the principle of je soli. Now, je soli is a Latin phrase for the right of soil. It's commonly referred or used to refer to birthright citizenship, the right of anyone born in the territory of a country to, to nationality or citizenship of that country. Now, unfortunately, the principle is slowly becoming a thing of the past. Now, some countries uh, have abolished it completely, like India, many other countries, including developed nations like uh, Canada, or sorry, Australia, France, Germany, Ireland, uh, New Zealand, Spain, and the UK have uh, introduced restrictions to just solely, mostly requiring at least one parent to have citizenship of that country. Now, only a limited number of the world's 195 countries grant citizenship at birth to the citizen, to, to the children of foreign nationals. No European country uh, grants automatic citizenship based on just solely. Uh, Canada is actually one of the few, uh, fewer than three dozen countries that follow the practice of citizenship based on birthright. Uh, now, the challenge, of course, with all this is we've talked uh, uh, for a significant period of time about the issue of birth tourism. 
And when I read this article today, that's what it reminded me of. That's what it looked like. And uh, I just want to say that the parents themselves have done nothing illegal. This is completely legal. But I found it interesting that we've been talking about birth tourism. And today, or at least this week, uh, the first child born in Vancouver in 2023 appears to be uh, a child born based on the issue of birth tourism. Now, one individual who has covered the issue uh, significantly is Graham Wood. He's an investigative reporter for Glacier Media, and he joins us now. Good afternoon, Graham. Oh, hello, Graham. Would we have you? Oh, oh, hi, Jazz. There you, you go. <laughs> there you go. I'm doing very well. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you and I, uh, uh, you know, you've um, been covering this story for a long time. I've been following it very closely uh, as well. Uh, and as I was saying, you know, the the story itself today, like I said, the parents haven't done anything illegal. This is completely illegal. But certainly on the surface of it, when you look at it, this is birth tourism, is it not? Yeah, this is um, absolutely a case of birth tourism. Uh you know, uh, it's a loaded word, I guess, for some people, but this is absolutely a case of uh, purposefully coming over to Canada, uh, picking your location and uh, uh, paying to give birth, um, paying for accommodations and uh, ultimately waiting to get that, uh, that uh, uh, coveted passport and to return back to Egypt. Uh, you've covered this story extensively. Uh, walk me through pre-COVID. What were the numbers looking like here uh, in in Vancouver when it comes to the issue of birth tourism? Pre-COVID, we were uh, BC was uh, upwards of nine hundred births uh, per per year uh, in twenty nineteen. Uh, about just over five hundred twenty were occurring at Richmond Hospital, and nationwide, uh, the estimates are about five thousand. And there's different uh, different ways of uh, counting them, but uh, we could we could say about five thousand per year, a little under one point five percent of all births in Canada. So walk me through this. As I said, the the couple haven't done anything wrong based on right. law. It's it's absolutely legal what they did. The child does get a citizenship, but to 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 go through this process, foreign nationals first of all would have to stay somewhere. So there's the issue of accommodations. You can't just walk right. into a Canadian BC hospital and just say, you know, we want, we, we, we're going to give birth here. You actually have to have a GP. So it, it would, you, you would have to find a GP too, right? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, we talked this morning about, uh, this issue and I, I was able to get a bit of background from some doctors I know. And, uh, what you do is you, you, you come over here and you either can stay with family. Maybe you have family here, maybe you don't. So in that, in that case, um, there's the baby house uh, operators, uh, maternity houses, uh, people who provide, uh, conduct a business for this. Um, but the other thing is you need a, you need a GP uh, or uh, sorry, a pediatrician and, uh, they need to deliver the baby. And so you have to pay these people, these doctors, um, in, in through the private system and, uh, from what I can gather, um, it will cost about five thousand uh, dollars, depending on the on the type of birth. Um, so you have you know up to ten uh, doctor visits in the two months uh, leading up to the birth, um, and then it's about twenty five hundred dollars for a C section delivery, which is probably the most common uh, um, course of uh, birth uh, for um, non residents. Um, once you've obtained your doctor, uh, who's you know likely happy to to have that extra income, um, they'll register register you at a hospital uh, that uh, provides birth, so uh, Richmond Hospital, Lionsgate Hospital. Um, we we're seeing a bit of an uptick uh, before COVID in uh, uh, Surrey, and 
at that point, you have to pay anywhere from ten to thirteen thousand dollars to the hospital, mm-hmm. and uh, after that, you can uh, head home. Uh, you probably head back to your uh, accommodations. Uh, it could be paid. It could be a simple Airbnb. It could be uh, one of these baby houses, and then uh, you know it takes about six weeks, uh, according to these uh, people. Uh, from Egypt to get all the documents and paperwork and uh, essentially get your passport. And this child is then a Canadian uh, Canadian citizen. Has there been any um, conversation uh, in a meaningful way? Because ultimately immigration uh, is a federal uh, federal issue, healthcare is provincial. Has there been any conversation about ending this practice in Canada? Because I think whether you're left-wing or right-wing, you know, the I think most Canadians, reasonable people, would say there's something fundamentally wrong with foreign nationals coming to this country, yes, paying for the service, like they haven't broken any rules, and the child automatically gets Canadian citizenship. Has there been any talk about changing these rules, uh, these laws federally? Yeah, before before, uh, COVID hit, um, there was talk of a federal study. Um, There hasn't been any published uh, work on this yet. Uh, They're trying to understand the issue. Um, There's the, the critics of the... Of the uh, of the critics, I suppose, uh, would say that this isn't that big of an issue. That um, uh, really, uh, the legislative changes would be, uh, you know, maybe uh, taking a hammer to a mole, or you know, um, taking a sledgehammer to a very uh, mouse, or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, the but there hasn't, you know, since COVID hit, there hasn't been any any word from the federal government on this. It was sort of uh, it, it was brushed aside. Uh, the the numbers have gone down drastically due to the travel restrictions. Um, but it appears to be that we're jumping back onto the carousel. So it will be interesting to see uh, if this will be an issue. Have there any lawsuits, uh, any issues of the medical practice? I think we have a good healthcare system. It is challenged, of course. Have there any medical complications where foreign nationals do come in here with children here? Yeah, just the, uh, just last month there was the uh, there's a lawsuit that's being launched against the two uh, head or two most popular pediatricians who deliver uh, not to non-residents. Um, that's uh, before the courts now. Uh, there's uh, the uh, uh, the parents of uh, a, Ch- a Chinese couple. Uh, they had some complications. There, unfortunately, their their um, son has uh, suffered some life uh, altering injuries, and they're suing the uh, hospital, the public uh, hospital, mm-hmm. as well as the uh, pediatricians who were hired. Um, and I'm not too sure what the implications are for those pediatricians if they have insurance coverage through the Canadian Medical Association. I, I, um, I'm curious. Uh, sorry, I'm, Graham. I'm curious. Like, you know, perhaps we don't need a, a full change of the law, but even a, a simple change, one would argue, is if you come to this country. I'm assuming on a tourist visa. There's yeah. no visa to say I'm coming to Canada to have a baby. If you're, they're probably coming on a tourist visa. Could we not make uh, citizenship null and void because you came in based on a tourist visa? As I said, some Europeans countries say, look, at least one of the parents has to be a citizen before that child is given citizen citizenship if they're born here. But in the case of foreign nationals coming to this country, couldn't we just say, yeah. wait a minute, you're both here on tourist tourist visas? That's not a tourist thing kind of thing to do. Your child is not going to get citizenship in this country. Yeah, I think it just comes down to political will, um, whether or not the politicians and the bureaucrats want to put in the, the effort here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really no other a- explanation as to why 
you know, if they're not going to do it, they're not going to do it. Um, it do- doesn't appear that the Liberal government uh, wanted to do it. They they said that they were studying it. There's been no no uh, movement on that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a bureaucrat. I, I don't understand what the laws would be in terms of legislation. If that would be too onerous, uh, the paperwork or what have you. Um, so it really comes down to weighing the the value that you put on citizenship uh, that we the public do uh, versus the actual um, time and effort that you have that you would have put in to close up those loopholes like maybe you shouldn't have uh, citizenship based on your your parents being inter- international students or or just simply birth uh, simply tourists yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Graham thank you so much for your time really appreciate it thanks Jazz take uh- care 2022 is a busy year when it comes to civics, uh, civic politics. New mayors for two of our biggest municipalities, Vancouver and Surrey, as well as a new chair for the Metro Vancouver Board. Uh, in this case, George Harvey was the mayor of Delta. He was on the show, of course, at 3 o'clock today. Winning elections, uh, of course, is one thing. Governing is another. Lots of issues to be debated and discussed this year. I'm sure we'll be covering a lot of it. Joining us now to talk about civic politics here in the Lower Mainland is Francis Bueller, who's a political contributor for the Globe and Mail. Francis Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Jess. Always great to be here. Happy New Year to you. I haven't talked to you in a little while. And I thought it was time to catch up and, and, and get a sense of, of what we will be looking at when it comes to issues uh, here uh, in um, the Lower Mainland. Let's start with Vancouver f- for a second. I know it's very early days in regards to um, Ken Sim and his administration's uh, um, sort of running the city today. They have a majority uh, across um, from Park Board to uh, School Board and um, City Hall. Uh, what do you foresee in regards to the issues that are going to be front and center for Mr. Sim and his slate? Well, the issues that will be front and center are the ones that he promised to handle in a better way than the last council. So that means um, dealing with the whole public disorder, homelessness, uh, you know, random vandalism, petty crime. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that it's the same group of people with everything. Um, That would be uh, wrong. But uh, there is a sense uh, of people, particularly in certain areas of the city, that, you know, things are fraying. And uh, they promised to do. That was their number one priority, hiring 100 extra police officers, 100 extra uh, psychiatric nurses to work with those police officers on the CAR 87 model. Mm -hmm. So that is going to be the big push and figuring out how to do it because that is a big budget hit. And they, the number two issues are going to be the budget, which they're going to be talking about uh, all through January and maybe even February, depending on how things go. So, um, you know, that's really uh, I, the, the, the big issue. And it covers so many things. It's like, you know, Chinatown revitalization, because in Chinatown, they feel that they were have been very impacted by the public disorder. Uh, but it's a particular area that needs, you know, can't have the same kind of solutions as maybe, you know, Caresdale or Kitsilano or something like that. So, so really big. And they didn't promise easy solutions. They didn't say we're going to clear off Hastings by, you know, December um, the way um, the NPA did uh, and so on. And these are super complex problems. Mm-hmm. Like every 
major city in North America and particularly cities on the West Coast are dealing with this. And um, I have to say, I, I see no one succeeding. Mm-hmm. I guess that brings me to the second question. I mean, is it too big for any government, especially a municipal government, to be able to successfully tackle this when you look at the issue of petty crime, when you look at the issue of mental health and addiction? I mean, how much of a role, do you, how much of an impact do you think a municipal government can actually have on this issue? I mean, they can. They can't pay for it all. There's no way. Uh, you know, every level of government has to get involved in this. Um, but a municipality can make a big difference by having a mayor and a council who are very vocal, who are strong leaders, who identify uh, a goal and drive towards it and make sure everyone's kind of herded and, and um, you know, uh, going in the same direction. Uh, they can't solve it by themselves. There's no way, but they can lead the way. And, you know, Vancouver's lucky. There's a, a sympathetic uh NDP government in power. There's a sympathetic liberal government in power. Both of uh, and both of those levels are aware that there's a kind of concern about the way cities are fraying across the country and the level of homelessness and the level of like what seems to be social dysfunction and and you know uh, people who need help not not getting it. Mm-hmm. Do you think this council in its early days is up for the the task here? And what I mean by that is uh, you have uh, some experience there, uh, but you see a lot of newbies there, whether it be a school a school board, whether it be a park board, whether it be a city hall as well. I know it's very early days. How would you describe so far from what you've seen in their ability to deal with the challenges there that are there before them? I mean, I think they're in a better position in some ways than some other councils that I've seen sweep into power, like, you know, COPE in 2002, where you ended up with a pretty completely brand new council and uh, with a mayor who was somewhat at odds with, you know, some of the values of the traditional COPE party. Um, so uh, in this case, there's three experienced counselors, Sarah Kirby Young, Lisa Dominato, and Rebecca Bly, who understand a bit better how the, you know, city functions than newbies. I mean, they're not, they've only been on term each, so they don't know it inside out the way, you know, some long-term counselors I've known uh, might. But, uh, you know, this is not a council that's totally at sea, and I expect those three to really... Um, play a very strong role uh, because they do understand what the, uh, the city a little bit and they understand what the city can and can't do. Uh, so they're not as bad off as some. I'd say the park board is in way more trouble because it is total newbies, total flip around from you know who was in charge the past four years and some really difficult problems to handle um, with a you know, uh, a board where people are paid like $20,000 a year to sit through endless meetings trying to solve massive social problems and, um, you know, uh, the staff of the park board as opposed to the staff of the whole city. Uh, what are the challenges? I'm curious with park board. Uh, you know, uh, park board sometimes gets too much criticism, but I'm very curious. When I know before Christmas break, we were talking a lot about uh, the bike lane. Uh, that would be one issue that, that can be very, uh, you know, high volume but uh not as controversial as some people may think what what are the sort of the issues do you think that are before them that uh, need that they're gonna have challenges with 
Well, again, it's the social disorder. I mean, the park board's main job has turned into like trying to keep um, homeless camps from getting out of control. And there is a very large one at Crab Park. And uh, anyone who lives in Vancouver, particularly on the east side, knows that regularly there are tents popping up in various parks. And, and, you know, I can't imagine the person power uh, that the park board is having to expand just to try to keep things status quo and make sure the parks don't get um, closed off to to, uh, regular citizens because they've essentially turned into homeless camps. So... Uh, that is their big issue. And then, um, you know, every again, everything flows from that. Like they, there's a lot of complaints about the lack of maintenance uh, in the parks. Uh, and uh, but again, they're struggling with like a massive problem that normally a parks department, you know, in the past, the parks department hasn't had to expend so much energy on it, which is dealing with the fallout from homelessness, uh, you know, um, uh, social disorder and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Frances Beale, a political contributor for the Globe and Mail. Uh, she follows civic politics uh, here in the Lower Mainland. We always love having her on to get a sense of what uh, many of our major city councils are working on. And we spent a lot of time talking about Vancouver. Uh, let's Focus a little bit on Surrey. Uh, I guess, uh, Francis, uh, we are expecting a decision from the Solicitor General very soon in regards to the entire Surrey RCMP versus Surrey Police Service uh, conversation. What are your thoughts just overall just seeing Surrey and and sort of the high-profile debates and conversations they've been having in that community over the last two or three years? How do you think, uh, what do you think the year looks like when it comes to Brenda Locke and, and, and what she hopes to accomplish there? Well, I mean, it will really depend on the Solicitor General's decision. Um, You know, if he says, if Mike Farnworth says, no, we've gone too far down this road, and the province itself is thinking of having an independent police force rather than the RCMP, so we might as well get going here. Um, That was the big thing that she campaigned on. It was her one issue that differentiated her from uh, other candidates uh, who came close, Um, you know, because Gordy Hogue had also challenged Doug McCallum, but he hadn't promised to completely reverse the the Surrey police decision. So that's going to be a very big deal for her, uh, Mm -hmm. how that decision goes. If if they agree with her and and keep the RCMP, she's vindicated, she's won uh, on the big issue she campaigned on. If not, uh, it's going to be a tough thing to recover from and they'll have to figure out, like, how do they work with that decision? You raise a very good point there that, you know, it's a tough decision. It's not an easy decision for Mike Farnworth. There's there's one side that say, well, do the easiest thing and go back to the RCMP. That's what Brenda Locke ran on, although she only won by about 900 votes or so. But one could easily argue, as you've said, we are probably eventually going to get to a BC police force for the lower mainland in some capacity. Does that get us a little bit closer? And does that make the decision a little bit easier over the next few years if we go with a Surrey police service? So I don't think it's as black and white as, as some uh, some people think. Now, one of the other issues of Surrey, 
Um, and through the whole region is, is just growth. Uh, we heard from the federal government that by 2025, uh, we should be welcoming 500,000 new Canadians per year. As I've said many times on this show, I remember the 1990s when we used to debate 225,000 immigrants, if that was too much. Uh, Brenda Locke was on this show a few weeks ago, and then she reminded me that Surrey now grows by about 1,500 residents per month, new residents every 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 month, every 30 days. Um the region itself, how do you think it can cope? Or can, is there a way to have a coherent housing policy, do you think, where, where, where we can finally start building in a coherent way? Some cities do it better than others. Vancouver would be better than others and, and, and vice versa. How do you think what Mr. Eby wants to do moving forward in regards to housing will sort of play out for the region? Well, that's going to be another really fascinating issue because he's signaled very, very clearly that he expects all municipalities to be um, taking on their share of new housing. <clears throat> and uh, there's a new housing act uh, that is specifically uh, focuses on that. So, uh, you know, places like Vancouver, Surrey, Coquitlam, Richmond, I would say Burnaby, they don't have to worry too much because they've been building a lot. Like I did a I did a look at um, what those cities have said they need and what they're building. And for the most part, they're exceeding their targets. Um, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with uh, the ones that haven't exceeded their targets. The sort of the District of North Vancouver, uh, the West Vancouver, Port Moody, uh, maybe, you know, White Rock, um, uh you know, um, Port Coquitlam, places like that, whether there'll be a bit more pressure. Uh, you raise a good point. There isn't like a, to, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a really good public discussion among the mayors about how are we going to all do our part here. I certainly get the impression from the mayors, they talk about it privately, you know, Richard Stewart, you know, sort of jab some of his colleagues sometimes about you know why don't you do a bit more <laughs> yes <know> that. <laughs> uh, so but they haven't really had a big public discussion about how are we all going to reach a regional goal to absorb these people like people have been willing to sort of let the heavy hitters take on a lot of the load uh, and sit back and kind of go, well, everyone wants to move to Vancouver anyway, so we don't have to do anything. Um, so that could be an interesting discussion. And especially you mentioned George Harvey, yeah, who's going to be the chair of Metro Vancouver. Well, Metro Vancouver has a new plan, a new 30-year plan, and part of it involves housing targets. Uh, and um, that could be the, the, the occasion for that because that needs to get passed and he's going to have to be outselling that. Mm -hmm. uh, plan to different parts of the region. So I think we're going to see some interesting conversations at various councils about are we doing enough or uh, we don't care if we're not doing enough. They can all go, you know, whatever. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> can take a flying leap. We're, we're happy the way we are. Yeah. Uh, so that could be a, an interesting discussion over the next four years, for sure. I think I think you're absolutely right. There are some suburbs who prefer to remain sleepy, and uh, I think they're going to have to be coaxed a little bit. So it'll be very interesting how that all transpires. Francis, thank you for your time today. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to 2023, and I'm sure we're both going to be surprised at a few points. <laughs> 
couple House Republicans flailed through a second day of multiple balloting, unable to elect their leader, Kevin McCarthy, as House Speaker or come up with a new strategy than the political chaos that has tarnished the start of the, their new majority. Now, for a fourth, fifth and sixth time, Republicans tried to vote McCarthy into the top job as the House plunged deeper into disarray. Well, our next guest is following this. Uh, all of this uh, as it transpires uh, in real time. Reggie Cicchini is Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jess. Uh, I know it's late uh, into the evening there now in, in Washington. What's your sense of what uh, how everything transpired today? Well, uh, what transpired today could potentially um, transpire tonight, and I say that only because there is a vote that is underway right now and will wrap up in just the next couple of minutes. Um, Republicans were trying to adjourn for the night so that they could continue on with themselves and then possibly bring this to a vote tomorrow. Uh, but as of right now, it looks like they don't have the votes to do that. And this could become a situation where voting goes on for the next several hours because Democrats are, are not willing to give Republicans any kind of leeway here. So what that builds upon is the three failed rounds of voting uh, that occurred in the House over the course of the afternoon. Republicans not lining up behind leader Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy himself refusing to bow out. And what we have is a House that is in disarray, but also a House that is non-functional. Uh, is there a, a way out of this? I mean, at this point, from what you're explaining to me, this could we could vote as many times as we want. There, no one seems to be budging here. Precisely. Uh, I mean, this is beating a political dead horse. On the first round of voting yesterday, Kevin McCarthy lost uh, by 19 or 20. And on the sixth round of voting today, he lost by 20, albeit to a different challenger who was put forth by uh, the so-called Republican rebels who will not line up behind McCarthy. And uh, uh, Representative Matt Gates out of Florida uh, kind of held a bit of a scrum in the halls of the Capitol not long ago. uh, And he was flat out asked, what is it going to take for you to put Potentially move this forward. And the line was for Kevin McCarthy to drop out of the race. McCarthy's not going to do that. He believes he can still figure out a way to get the victory. This just acts as a bit of, of, of political tarnish now on the legacy that kind of led Kevin McCarthy to where he is and whatever may come after this. What do these 20 conservative holdouts want? They want change uh, in the House of Representatives. These are uh, some anti-establishment uh, members of Congress. And I think, you know, beyond that, it's, it's important to remember that some of these candidates are uh, from ruby red Donald Trump areas around the United States that have been backed by Donald Trump. But Trump himself is also backing uh, Kevin McCarthy. So there's there's a lot of kind of political optics at play here. But ultimately, they want more power. They do not want the House of Representatives to be a top down structure. They want to weaken the chairs so that members of Congress, rank-and-file members within the Republican Party, get a bigger say when it comes to the investigations or the agenda that's going to come forward. And Kevin McCarthy has been willing to bend on some of that, but not all of that, and that is now a sticking point. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time in 100 years that a, that a nominee for House Speaker hasn't been able to, to, to um, uh, take the gavel in the first vote? 
The first time in 100 years in jazz. It's only happened 14 times before. So it happened in 1923. It went round after round after round. The other 13 times were all in pre-Civil War America. So this is not something that happens very often. And the Democrats earlier today made a point of saying, look, when we had the gavel two years ago, we elected Nancy Pelosi in one round of votes, even though there was a bit of a fracture in the party with members from the furthest left wing of the Democrats, they were still able to coalesce around the leader uh, and and the vote went forward. So Democrats are saying, look, if this is what Republicans are, uh, are, are doing with a constitutionally required part of the job, how are they going to be able to govern? And there was one Democrat that said, look, if, if Republicans can't do it, hand it to the Democrats and we'll simply do it for them. This is very early, and it may be a bit of an unfair question, but I'm very curious with your thoughts because you cover this so closely. What does this mean for the Republican Party? Let's just say they do eventually vote for someone, the 7th, 8th, 10th time, whatever time may be. What does this say about the party itself and its health? I think that it's going to make things more difficult, or at least it's giving the American public an idea of the party that they put in power. Because, you know, oftentimes this isn't the kind of uh, legislation that we see in the House. And a part of that is because there's no speaker, so there are no rules. So there are more cameras that are allowed inside. This is not, you know, how often we get to, to see inside the belly uh, of, of the House of Representatives. But if they're having this kind of a difficulty in doing the constitutionally required uh, part of their job, which is putting a speaker in place to allow for Congress to be sworn in, there are questions being raised as to what is this going to mean when the agenda is laid out, when committees have been assigned, uh, and when investigations uh, are going to be underway. Are we going to run into a situation where Republicans can't, um, you know, come to any kind of mutual terms with themselves and they're unable to carry forward? This could have a lasting impact. It could also have an impact on the electorate two years from now when all of these members of Congress are back uh, up for a vote again, is this going to be something that the, that the base remembers and that, well, we put them there and they wasted three days trying to just get a leader in place? Uh, it, the broader public, uh, you talked about the base, but the broader public itself, what's the general sentiment you're getting from them, never mind the base, from them in regards to watching uh, this all unfold? Well, I mean, look, Democrats and the Democratic base are saying this is precisely what can be expected from a Republican Party that has been fracturing over the last X number of years since Donald Trump really found himself to kind of be splitting the party from the conservatives to the ultra, uh, you know, quote unquote, MAGA parts uh, of the Republican Party. The base is simply saying, look, uh, we need to get things done. And, and it goes beyond that. I mean, number one, the State Department came out today and said, well, all of this is, is kind of a bit of nonsensical. It shows the world that this is really what a democratic institution should look like. But on the flip side of that, the, 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 the kind of broader public is now watching a potential crisis unfold here because without a Speaker of the House, in the event of a national crisis, uh, security matters become an issue. The Speaker is third in line to the presidency, so there would be no kind of governmental response. So there is, you know, not to say that there's growing worry amongst the, the broad public as this is still so early on, but it is something that people are starting to pay attention to. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I know uh, you've had a couple of very long days. It looks like uh, perhaps a few more. Really appreciate you making time for us uh, this evening, uh, Washington time. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Now, we spent a lot of time talking about random vandalism in Vancouver uh, throughout 2022. Well, New Year, same problems. Now, a Yale Town business owner is speaking out after his shop suffered two break-ins in two nights, a problem many Vancouver business owners have grown accustomed to. Sean McGarva is the owner of the West of Woodward's Boutique on Hamilton Street. He joins us now. Sean, thanks for speaking to us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot. Uh, walk me through what the last 24 and 48 hours have been like for you and, and just uh, your your uh, employees and having to deal with this latest B&E. Yeah, sure. Um, we've uh, we've definitely had some challenges here coming off the holiday. Uh, you know, after being closed <clears throat> for New Year's Day, like most businesses were, um, had, a, had a friend of the uh, Vancouver Fire actually drive by in the early mornings uh, of January 2nd, so about 5 a.m., and noticed uh, our glass was broken out. So a t- tough start to that day and, and came down to, to see that there was a break-in. Um, they couldn't fully enter because we do have, like, steel scissor gates, but the glass was definitely broken, and they undressed a mannequin that was within reach uh, in the window, unfortunately. So uh, my father, my father-in-law and I, uh, you know, go went to Home Depot and boarded it up ourselves. We weren't able to connect with insurance or anything based on the holiday. So then uh, we were boarded up on that side and conducted business as usual on the second and uh, overnight on the third, uh, a a resident that lives above our store then texted me early, early morning on the third and said, Oh my goodness, your the other side is broken out. So I rushed down here and even though we, we had, you know, moved mannequins away from the other side, the, the person did return the next morning with a, a device to reach through the gates even further after the glass was broken out and, you know, steal some more items from a rack, a nearby rack. So, um, yeah, a couple days of deja vu, really just boarding up the store on both, on both sides now. And, uh, you know, dealing with VPD since, uh, any idea what it's cost you so far, just in regards to replacement or, or anything else and what, what the cost is right now? Sure. Yeah, I guess, you know, costs are coming through, but uh, I know, we're a small store. We've got, you know, really tight traction on all inventories. So we know, we know the items even from surveillance video that were taken. So it's a, it's $2,000 uh, total with a, with a winter parka being one and a couple pairs of pants the second night. So, you know, it's, it's not significant overall for our small store. It, it does. We still feel it for sure. Um, and then, you know, since having, um, I did, I bought the material and did it myself the first time. The second time had to get a crew out because I was on my own on the third to board up the side. So, you know, that's a thousand dollars there. And, and the quote for glass is going to be, you know, like 2,500 bucks. So it's getting close to, you know, four or $5,000. We already spent about $5,000 in steel gates on the inside of all of our windows and the doorway to prevent any entry. But uh, it seems that um, they're still willing to break through the glass and reach through for a single item. So, it's adding up for, for a small business, of course, you know. How long have you been in the neighborhood? Uh, we opened, ironically, uh, March of 2020. So in a couple months here, it's going to be our three-year. Um, so it's, it's been a few years, and we really have become part of this street and this community of, of Yaletown for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and have you noticed, uh, I mean, you've had to go through a lot with COVID and everything else um, in regards to yeah. the timeline that where you've been open. In regards to the street, the neighborhood, have you seen? Is it different even in those three years, or or, or is it the same? Or as you see, have you seen some sort of decline uh, in and around where where the business is? Well, I'd say um, I can't say visibly um, 
an increase in presence, in police presence, which I'm also on the Yale Town Business Association board. Um, so I know some efforts that are put in place to for awareness and presence. Um, it's it's not visibly there yet. I know VPD is doing the best they can, and I got to experience it the first hand the past 48 hours. But it's it's got to be a challenge for them because I can see it on their faces, and they're telling me how prevalent this is everywhere in the city, not just Yale Town. Um, so it's definitely it's a collective effort with uh, residents, uh, shop owners, and uh, obviously uh, law. Mm-hmm. What do you think needs to happen here? Uh, you know, when you hear these stories, uh, they come and go. Uh, but you have to yeah. deal with it directly, the financial impact, the worry at night, knowing, you know, worrying that somebody uh, doesn't break in tonight in, in your store. What do you what do you want yeah. to see as a business owner and as a citizen here in Vancouver? I'm all for, uh, I think, uh, improvement of presence. I think um, I think they, the, the, you know, the police need our, our support um, as well as uh, the investment in, in um in helping, uh, you know, circulate and, and be on the streets in, in the hours that uh, this kind of mischief's going down. Um, outside of that, I think, um, you know, d- during business hours, it's really just getting back and supporting your local merchants, like really, you know, supporting in your in your region and, um, and uh, taking a vested interest in the small businesses that are kind of keeping the streets somewhat uh, occupied and, and present. And because we, we can't afford to uh, have, have us go away as small business owners um, because we're that fabric of the community that keeps, it keeps more eyes and, and more presence. Do you worry, though, uh, that there are businesses that yeah. are going to close and say, look, whether it's rent or whether it's crime uh, and petty oh, crime, yeah. that you're going to lose a lot of the front street business, small businesses that are there? Do I, I, do, I do have that worry, of course. So um, I think, uh, you know, I'm part of... Part of the group that's uh, that's existing now that's uh, trying to 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 keep the, that social part of our, our streets for sure and having interactive uh, commerce you know available so it, it's a worry for sure but um, I you know with with the interaction every day you can um, you can see more and more people wanting to help their community I think that helps of course, along with like police presence for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I wish you well, and I really hope you don't have to deal with this uh, anymore because it's stressful enough uh, when you got to do it two nights in a row, and uh, we wish you the best. Thank you so much uh, for your time and sharing your story today. Absolutely. Thanks for hearing me out. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.